So I put all my heart and soul to the extent of my family suffering. Oh, yeah, I regret it very much. Association football is the most popular outdoor sport in Britain. Thousands play and millions watch the game. Keenest of all are the youngsters, whose heroes are the famous professional footballers, and who dream of the day when they too, perhaps, may wear the colours of a famous club and hear the roar of the crowd. When you hear the words Crystal Palace, what do you think about? Do few people in a lifetime come to the chance of seeing such a gigantic blaze as the funeral pyre of the Crystal Palace, the proudest building of the last century, one of the few remaining links with Queen Victoria and Prince Albert. Built in 1851 in Hyde Park for the Great Exhibition, opened in Royal Square. The pre-match ritual of Kayla the Eagle gliding across Selhurst Park is one of the most dramatic in the Premier League and has set the tone at Crystal Palace home games for more than five years. Roy Hodgson went on to join Crystal Palace as a youth team player in the early 1960s but only now does he walk out of the tunnel at Selhurst Park in charge of the team that he has always supported. That is superb from Wilfred Zaha! From out of nothing, he has cut up a special goal. Murray, chance here, Gale, 3-3. And Dwight Gale, they just have blown Liverpool right out of the title picture. Was by Stones, and Ross Townsend. A flash of brilliance. Spectacular. And what an incredible turnaround here! It is Manchester City 1, it is Crystal Palace 2! Thorne puts it on, and it's gone in! Pardew! 4-3 Palace! Thorne picks it on, and somewhere out the crowd came Pardew! I look at this guy's character and go, you're a turd. Why would I want someone like you, when it comes to adversity, when it comes to a situation where I'm going to really need you to stand up, are you going to be the same as you were over there? The balance is, then shut your mouth and don't you dare come out and start talking about how you could have done something to help somebody, but you didn't, and how it would have been better for you, for them, if you had have done it, and you're sad because it could have been so much easier for your right of passage to do precisely what you want, but you didn't. It's finished! Dean's blown his whistle and Sheffield Wednesday are relegated and Crystal Palace have survived by the skin of their teeth. There was no time for Wednesday to take the corner. They are distraught, they are desperate, they are relegated. Crystal Palace stay in the championship. Hello there and welcome to another episode of Under Flat Caps and Bowler Hats. Brought to you by Man Marking. My name is Dan Reed, and today you'll be joining me as I take a look back at another example of mental health in football from yesteryear. As usual, I was joined on today's episode by a really special guest. 
I always try and get someone on who was either a fan of the club that's involved or somebody who knew the uh, person involved or had a sort of expert eye on the subject that we were touching on. Today's episode was obviously on Billy Callender. Uh, Billy died almost 100 years ago, so the likelihood of being able to get hold of someone who knew him or had met him at all was very, very slim. But I came across a book online called The Sad Story of Billy Callender, which uh, I bought on Amazon. It was only a few quid, and it's only a short book. It's only about 25 pages, and it's really, really interesting, and it's such a really heartwarming and, and sad story at the same time. And the guy who wrote that, Jim Wright, I really wanted to speak to him, really wanted to get him on the podcast. I put a couple of tweets out. I was trying to get hold of him somehow. And a lot of Crystal Palace fans helped me locate him. I, I messed a couple of Crystal Palace Crystal Palace fans groups to, to kind of get a, a retweet or two to see if they could help me out. And yeah, no, I was I was really pleased to get hold of Jim and and he was he was excellent and he was really happy to come on and speak to us and and try and keep the story of Billy Callender alive. So I would I would really appreciate it if you would uh, go and find that book, purchase it, and give it a read. I'm going to be obviously telling you some of the information today, but there's a lot more out there that, that Jim has covered. A uh, journalist. Uh, I grew up in uh, Norwood, South London, and uh, I moved around the country according to what title I was working for. And I'm now settled with a family in in Cleethorpes, near Grimsby, in, in northeast Lincolnshire. And I've followed the professional game since, oh, painful to say this, 1957-58. That's when uh, wolves dominated the game. And, of course, uh, dinosaurs roamed the earth. <laughs> I, I, was about, I was about nine at the time, so you can, you can, you can do the arithmetic. <laughs> out of respect I won't Jim don't worry <laughs> so that was Jim and we'll hear a little bit more from him later as we tell a story of Billy Callender but I do want to get on with that story and I want to tell you about Billy Callender and his life and, and his tragic death but in order to do that I really need to give you a little bit of context about the time period that Billy was living in so here's a little bit about 1903 the year that Billy Callender was born out of control. No, 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 no. That's not right. Let's try this. On the 18th of January, the first transatlantic radio transmission to originate from the United States is sent by transmitter. On January the 19th, the Tour de France was created. On the 15th of February, the first teddy bear was introduced in America by Morris and Rose Mitchin. On the 22nd of March, drought causes the Niagara Falls to run dry. On the 16th of June, Henry Ford founds the Ford Motor Company. On the same day that the Pepsi Cola Company was formed. On August 15th, the All Blacks rugby team play their first ever rugby test match, beating the Australian Wallabies 22-3. On the 1st of October, the Pittsburgh Pirates win the first ever Baseball World Series. On the 10th of October, Emmeline Pankhurst forms the Women's Social and Political Union, later to be known as the Suffragettes. On the 2nd of November, the Daily Mirror begins publishing. On December 10th, Pierre and Marie Curie were awarded Nobel Prizes for Physics for their study of radioactivity. And on December 17th, the Wright brothers make the first sustained motorised aircraft flight. 
This story is obviously about Billy Callender and about his life and about his tragic death, unfortunately, as well. But the story is as much about Billy as it is about Crystal Palace. And what I always try and do with these episodes is get a little bit of a feel for the club and about what the club represents. And for that, I asked Jim a little bit about when he started supporting Crystal Palace. I started off as a Wolves fan because I was only a school kid and um, they they were riding high in in the first division and um, also their captain, a chap called Billy Wright, who also was captain of England. And I like to think I might be um, be, uh, related to him, but I I wasn't. And uh, I also like the name Wolverhampton Wanderers. I I think it it just rolls off the tongue of the trees. A lot of clubs like that, particularly Scottish clubs, part of the Middle East. Of the South and, and almost academicals. Not good reasons, obviously, for supporting a, fa- uh, a club. But uh, yeah, I came round to, to being a Palace fan because that was my local territory. Okay, then. So let's get on with our main man. Who was Billy Callender? This was the first question I asked Jim. Well, he was born and grew up in a, um, a mining village. Um, West Wylam in Northumberland. This was 1904. Uh, he was an orphan. He never knew his father. And for whatever reason, his mother wasn't able to look after him. And so he was taken by a couple called Joseph and Hannah Callender, and he adopted their name. They also had two boys of their own. Uh, and Billy also had a younger brother called Percy, who was also part of the family. Um, I imagine he probably would have left school at about or, or not much older, and inevitably it was a mining village, so he became a miner, and, and he he, um, he probably worked down the mines for six or seven years. A pretty tough existence, particularly because he, he was a six-footer, and uh, that would have been a really, really, really arduous for him. As Jim mentioned there, Billy was uh, a miner. He probably didn't have much of a choice in the matter. His foster dad was a coal miner himself, as were his two foster brothers, George and Tom. And given the the area of the country that he grew up in, he, you know, most men at that age, most men at that time were working down in the coal mines. And it was probably the biggest industry in the United Kingdom at the time, which actually peaked in 1913 at 287 million tons of coal that were being produced in the UK. So you can see how big of an industry it was. And, you know, I don't know how much people actually know about coal mining. I certainly don't know an enormous amount. Most of my knowledge of coal mining comes from the film Billy Elliot. I used to go to Bali. See? I feel nana. For girls. Not, not, not for lads, Billy. Lads do football or boxing or wrestling. Not friggin' Bali. I wanted to have a little bit better understanding about what it was like to work in a coal mine, particularly in that in that era over a hundred years ago, what it must have been like to work down in those mines. And so I had a little look around on YouTube to, to come up with a bit of a clip to find somebody who'd be able to explain what it was really like. And it gives a little bit of context as to the reasons why Billy may have been so passionate about exploring his career as a footballer. The best the first time I went underground, and I don't mind admitting I was a little apprehensive. My father had worked in the coal mines, he didn't want me to go down. Uncles had told me the same thing, so I wasn't quite sure what to expect. It was fairly comfortable once I got down there. 
whitewashed roadways. I could see everything that was going on and I thought, well, this is not so bad. I'll just continue on like this. Uh, later, when I was at the coal face, that was a different world altogether. Instead of walking in heights of eight, nine feet along roadways, you were down to three feet six. And it was ordinary wooden props, setting steel bars and moving them forward, having filled off a stretch of coal anywhere between three and six yards of coal. That clip is actually from a BBC four-part documentary called When British Coal Was King. Um, and you can find that on uh, YouTube. So just search When British Coal Was King. It's really interesting. Um, anyway, back to Billy Callender. Spare time, he played football, first for his local church side and then for a more senior club called Prado Castle. I'm calling it Prado because that's how it's spelled, but I think it's actually pronounced Prado. Um, and the moment that changed his life was when a Palace scout saw him and was impressed and made the offer four pounds a week to sign for Palace. So that must have been a hell of a big moment to go from being a minor to a, to a professional footballer. Um, he had to do his apprenticeship in the reserves for a couple of seasons because Palace had a, a very good goalkeeper called Jack Alderson and he was also from the North East. He, I think he played, or he was from, he was from Middlesbrough, but he played for uh, Crook Town. And uh, he was first team choice. But then when he signed for uh, Sheffield United, Billy Callender took over as first team choice. And he, he, remained, he remained that for, the, for eight years. And he played more than 200, 200 games, 225, I think, uh, which was pretty good. And, uh, and he was supposed to be a very good penalty stopper. The club obviously appreciated him. They gave him a benefit after just eight years. He, he was um, he was injured at the time and he didn't play, so so he ran the line. Um, in one interesting match in which uh, it was an FA Cup match and Palace lost eleven four to Manchester City, and he, he apparently played so well that he was actually chaired off the pitch by his teammates. Which just incredible considering he'd let in eleven goals. But that, that's basically the uh, how he came to be at Palace, and and he. In an absolute nutshell, how his career went. That match that that Jim talks about, the eleven four match against uh, Manchester City, is actually available on YouTube. And I pulled a little bit of a clip from it and used it in the preview video that you would have seen on Twitter. It's actually courtesy of British Pathé. Um, it's really interesting. I think as much as anything else, it kind of highlights how different football was, you know, a hundred years ago to what it looks like today. And you know, football at that time wasn't broadcast as much on the television. And I think that clip is probably the only clip of Billy Callender playing online at the moment. It was certainly the only one that I could find. And I think if you consider that game doesn't have any commentary, live football itself actually didn't start um, being broadcast on British TV until sort of the late 1930s. Um, it would have sounded a little bit like this. Cup final enthusiasm prevails in Berlin when England meet Germany on the soccer field. 115,000 spectators pack the Great Olympic Stadium and are rewarded by an orgy of scoring. After England have taken a 3-1 lead, Matthews, their right winger, runs through to add a fourth. 
So Billy signs for Palace in, in 1923. He's actually signed by Edmund Goodman, who is to date the longest-serving Crystal Palace manager, who actually had his leg amputated following a, an injury when he was a player. An injury that apparently, if it was in modern-day times, may have been sorted by quite a simple procedure. But at the time, obviously, medical science was, was kind of different than it is today. And, and unfortunately, it resulted in him having his leg amputated. What I kind of wanted to know next then was, at that time, what sort of level were Crystal Palace playing at? What kind of level was Billy Callender facing as Crystal Palace's shot stopper? Um, they would have been third division south, and they were they were strugglers, to be quite honest. They never they were never never challenging for the um, honours. I think it was, I mean, I think it was a struggle to um, not to have to apply for re-election, but. Uh, Things perked up a bit then. One of the attendances that you referenced one of the games was about ten thousand. I presume that was quite a lot for a for that level. It was quite a lot, but what I actually was cut was following Palace originally in the in the, in the fourth division. They were getting eighteen thousand. I mean, there wasn't a lot of a lot of competition for football then, and the crowds were very hefty, really really big. And um, obviously, football in the in the the 1920s, 1930s was sort of very different from from what it's what it's like today. What were kind of the what was sort of the one of the main differences between football then and, and, and football now? Yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, I, I love those old newsreels that you see on on television and on YouTube. You know, huge crowds, players in baggy shorts, and frantic scrambles in the goal mouth. There's no uh, grass on the pitch, and there's Mud everywhere, and, and, and I particularly like the breathless urgency of the commentator. It's sort of recognisable and unrecognisable. Um, I think in the 1920s, um, it was just after 1914-18 war, and, and uh, its popularity really, really exploded. Uh, and football league doubled. Originally, it was just the two divisions: had the third division, north and south. There were no floodlights then, no overseas players. The government wouldn't allow it. Um, no European competitions. And one particularly interesting fact is that often the players weren't picked by the, the manager, but they were, they were picked by the, the directors. And, and some of the players, in fact, were just amateurs. Uh, another feature of the game then was that there were no real tactics or formations. And it wasn't until Herbert Chapman won a hatful of, hat of trophies for first Huddersfield and then Arsenal um, that things changed. Because he had the belief that you can organise a victory even without having the most skillful players. Uh, he was a great believer in counter-attacking football. Um, he used to say, uh, it's a mistake for a team to attack all the time. And I've got a feeling that... Uh, Palace manager Roy Hodgson is, is a is a kind of modern day Chapman because he he's um he's a great one for sitting back and and counter counterattacking. Um, but I mean there are formations and styles now, and uh, you have to adapt the team to the players you've got. One of the sort of quirks of this story is. Why did Crystal Palace know about this guy that was playing up in the northeast at quite a low level, to the extent that they would bring him down and sign him for Crystal Palace? I mean, Crystal Palace is about two hundred and fifty miles away from where 
Billy was living at the time and where he was playing football. But uh, I spoke to Jim about this, and it's it's detailed in his book as well. It, Crystal Palace had some quite a lot of links with the North East. They had uh, good relationships with the scouts that were up there. And I know it seems really strange, 100 years ago, players being scouted from you know from all areas of the country but it was going on apparently they signed a, a number of players from the northeast uh jack alderson who who jim mentions who was the first choice goalkeeper when billy signs and also uh jimmy hamilton who was a, a center half and the goalkeeper that replaced billy when he uh when he sadly lost his life was also from the northeast so they had quite a lot of links with the uh with the area in the northeast and yeah it's just one of those sort of strange quirks about the, this story that you know was something i wasn't really aware of so billy has moved down to crystal palace he's become established as the first choice goalkeeper he's played for a number of seasons and then he falls in love with a girl called ella and that's where the story takes us next yeah she she worked for the, the board of guardians this was a Sort of was a government organization which defined foster parents for children whose families had been fractured, perhaps from losing their fathers in the First World War. Um, I don't actually know how they met, uh, I think it was probably at a dance or a fun fair or something like that. I, I don't know how couples did get together in, in those days. Um, but the but the romance seems to have been pretty, pretty perfect, really. I mean, uh. Real Romeo and Juliet stuff. Uh, they, were, they were going to get married, but then, of course, uh, she contracted poliomyelitis, uh, and it was um, a, a dreaded disease really throughout the first half of the 20th century. Uh, it had the same fear element in a way as COVID does today. I mean, 80% had no symptoms. Uh, I think 10% had a sore throat or a slight temperature that just shrugged you off. Then ten percent were paralysed in the limbs, usually the legs. And unlike COVID, where um, the elderly are the most vulnerable, with polio, it was the young who were most at risk. And um, and poor Ella, she she um, she had these tingling sensations in her legs, and ultimately um, she, she lost the use of them. And Billy used to care for her. He used to wheel her about in the wheelchair, but they, they called them bath chairs then, and obviously hoping, praying that she'd get better, but but she got worse, and um, the disease spread to the um, rest of her, her body, and, and, and she died in May 1932. She, she was only 23. So, a, I mean, I'm sorry, that's a really sad, sad way to end her life, you know. I, I mean... So Billy and Ella were, were very much in love and to Ella, Billy was a, a gentle giant and to Billy, Ella was pretty and kind and loyal and they were due to get married before Ella sadly was diagnosed and then developed further symptoms of polio before she sadly died in May of 1932. And I asked Jim next, how did Billy react to that death? He never really, well, he never recovered at all. He couldn't, without her, um, apparently he used to, um, according to his landlady, he just locked himself, or he shut himself in his room and he'd only come down for meals and he wouldn't go out at all or very seldom. I think Ella's brother tried to cheer him up, but, but he, he said that she, he just couldn't be, um, his spirits just couldn't be lifted. He was just totally obsessed. And um, the end came when 
a couple of months later, he went to Selhurst Park, the club's ground, to, to register for the, the new season, the 1932-33 season. But then instead of returning to his lodgings, he stayed at the ground and uh, he took his own life outside the boardroom in the main stand. And he, he was discovered the next day by the groundsman and the club's trainer, a chap called Jack Jones. Um, but something must have tipped him over the edge. But a few days later, the, the inquest was held. And that was obviously a very sad event. It, his brother, who'd come down from Northumberland, sobbed throughout the proceedings. And, and was, according to the landlady, he, she, she said he had a nervous breakdown. And um, apparently he did ask the club to have a fellow player to share, share lodgings with him, somebody for him to talk to. But um, perhaps the request came too late. And um, so that, that was it. So Billy sadly took his own life towards the middle. So Billy sadly took his life also in 1932, not long after his his partner Ella had died. And, it, it, you know, it's very difficult for us to speculate on this on this podcast about the reasons why people choose to take their own lives they're obviously very varied and and it's very nuanced this type of thing as well but you have to think that Ella's tragic death played a significant part in the sort of last months of of Billy's life and I think it's also worth taking into account in 1932 uh, you were sort of in this country we were feeling the effects of the great depression or the great slump um there were high levels of unemployment high levels of poverty and they actually peaked in 1932, affecting areas like the northeast, the northwest, Wales, Northern Ireland. Um, there was also high levels of suicide at that time as well, and I think attitudes towards suicide and sort of mental health more broadly have obviously changed over the last hundred years or so. But I think it's always worth reminding ourselves of what the sort of reaction both to to death and also to to suicide was like at that time. You're absolutely right on that. Um... Um, the funeral was held in his home village and um, people lined the streets. There were a lot of tributes and the flowers. And um, at the same time, uh, Crystal Palace Football Club, I mean, they, they would have been very grief-stricken and sad, but at the same time, I think they would have been embarrassed because that was the way things were at the time. They, they were keen to draw a line under the match before the start of the new season. Um, uh, the, and they didn't want that outing, the, you know, the, the new campaign. I, I did manage to track down the, the program after the first program after match program after his after his death, and I thought, well, there's going to be a, a, a warm tribute to him in, in this. There wasn't a line about it. I mean, absolutely nothing. Um, not even a reference to what had happened. But um, I mean, I, it's you, you can't really. Judge the judge the club. Times were, were different now. You can't put them on trial for things that happened many years ago. Uh, suicide was a criminal offence then. I mean, it was regarded as self murder. In fact, uh, it was an offence till 1961. I mean, that word commit, you know, that's got criminality element to it. So really, I mean, the only legacy he's left in a way. Is, Terribly sad circumstances of his death, and I don't suppose anybody's learned much about it at the time, anyway. Yeah, it, it's interesting that one of the the things I, I kind of thought about uh, when I read that thing about 
how it wasn't recognised in the programme and, you know, there wasn't much sort of public displays of, of remembrance was, it, it kind of is standing stark contrast almost to, you can imagine the way that it would be sort of handled now, that it would probably be very public in the way that it's it's dealt with, I suppose, that the, the person I would think of would be kind of Gary Speed and there was yeah. a lot of sort of public tributes to, to him and stands in kind of stark contrast and I suppose that would be it would it, it sort of demonstrates for Billy the type of environment that he was living in and probably why he wouldn't have been able to speak to anybody about the sort of grief that he was going through. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right on that. I mean, I, yeah, I was aware of the the contrast with Gary Speed, and I, I mean, I think, I mean, I, I, I mean, I think it was tremendous, really, that the, the tribute and kindness that came out after. What happened with Gary Speed and, and Billy Callender? Well, really, nothing. That was, the the the, uh, the book was shut on his life, and uh, and and Ella as well. Really, I mean, it was just two star-crossed lovers. I mean, so Billy sadly passed away. And my next question for Jim was around why he felt so strongly about writing the book. Why you know he felt so strongly about keeping Billy's story alive. It's a good question, really, and I haven't. I'm not able to answer it. I think every footballer has a story to tell, and there's every man, woman, and child. But in a way, at least to me, that the ones who are more interesting are the ones. Well, not the ones who who, who everything has gone right, but the ones for which everything has gone wrong. Um, they just seem to be more somehow more interesting individuals, or the circumstances seem more interesting, and. Um, it's not just a tale about uh, Billy. It's also a tale about Ella, and um, I think everybody's fascinated when the stars seem to work against two lovers in this way. So I, I've, I was very moved by the tragedy. I, I wanted to to to, to investigate, research it um, in 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 a way. I was well entirely. I was dependent on. Um, on newspaper cuttings and histories of Alice Football Club. Um, it was a great shame that I couldn't talk to anybody who might have known him. I did I did hope somebody might come forward um, so, who, who could have said a little bit more about him, but um, I just um, drew a bit of a blank on that. I, I think somebody mentioned that uh, the thing that always struck, struck him about Billy Callender was um, that he used to blush when he came out uh, of a tunnel at the start of the match or whatever people cheered him, which I thought that was rather unusual in a footballer to be sort of so shy that he would blush. And he, he, another factor about him was that um, they didn't have shin pads in those days and he used to um, wear these, uh, roll up in a way, he rolled up newspapers and he had enormous thick layers of newspaper around his legs under, underneath his socks and that made them look absolutely enormous. So that was the sad story of Billy Callender. The last thing I'm going to tell you about Billy, which comes from the book called The Men Who Made Crystal Palace, which was written by the club's former historian, the Reverend Nigel Sands. And he wrote of Callender that his popularity at Sellers Park knew no bounds. Those who knew Billy were still speaking of him with great affection some 60 years after. A measure of the standing and ability of the Palace goalkeeper who but for one of life's tragedies, might have reached the highest honours in the game. 
At this point, I'm going to make a little bit of an appeal to anybody listening, and in particular Crystal Palace fans. We did an episode uh, of Flat Caps a short while ago about the former Everton player George Harrison, who played for Everton around the time of the First World War. He also fought in the First World War and, and sadly took his own life uh, about 10 years afterwards. And I came across George Harrison through the Everton Heritage Society, who funded a, uh, a plaque and a memorial service for George Harrison and paid for a new headstone for him. And that was in conjunction with, with Everton Football Club as well. And what I was kind of looking to do was I spoke to Jim at the end of the episode about, you know, is there anything else that he'd like to do now that this is, you know, he's written the book and, you know, would he like to keep Billy's story alive at all? And, you know, he was quite interested in seeing if there was any way of getting in touch with Crystal Palace to see if we could potentially get some kind of remembrance for Billy for for his, you know, for his legacy. He doesn't seem to have any family. There doesn't seem to be anybody who knew him when he was alive, or you know, knew anybody who knew anybody and that sort of thing. So, there's a bit of an appeal, really, to anybody who knows anybody who could help us get in touch, maybe with somebody who would be able to arrange this, because I think that would be a really nice way to to remember Billy Callender as a a significant part of Crystal Palace's history as a football club. Um. And I'd also like to make a second appeal, which is for anyone who has listened to this, to go and buy The Sad Story of Billy Calendar, which is on Amazon. As I said, it's only a few quid, and it's written by Jim Wright, and there are lots of stuff in there that, that I haven't covered in this episode, and it's it, it's brilliant. It's a really charming little book that, that Jim's written, and it's one of many that he's written as well, and he was absolutely superb, and, and was brilliant to come on the podcast and tell us his story, and yeah, you know, if, if you've enjoyed the episode, if you want to know a little bit more about Billy Calendar and about Crystal Palace at that time, then I would thoroughly recommend going to buy the, the sad story of Billy Calendar. So thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to uh, Under Flat Caps and Bowler Hats. You can find us on Twitter at Marking underscore Man. And don't forget to use the hashtag Where's the Talking Lads. If you have enjoyed today's episode, we do have lots of other episodes of Under Flat Caps and Bowler Hats. Um, we've got one on Robin Friday, the aforementioned George Harrison, Justin Fashionu uh, and Dave Clement as well. So there are lots for, for you to get involved in. We also have lots of episodes where we do interviews with people from the game. Neville Southfall, Mark and Nicola Palios, Guy Branston, Chris Uwalumo, Luke Aaron Moore, Miguel Delaney, Alex Hay, Carl Anker. There are loads and loads of episodes on there. So thank you for listening and uh, we'll see you next time. Cause you're the greatest